0: This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, brought to you by American Rivers. Whether we've seen it in person, through photographs, or on film, most of us have some idea of the beauty of the Grand Canyon. Close your eyes and visualize the canyon. You stand at the rim marveling at the vastness before you, nothing but an expanse of air extending from the tips of your toes to as far as the eye can see. The shapes and colors of the rock formations sprawled across your field of vision seem to take on a personality of their own, so far beyond what the human mind can comprehend. And amidst this image, you understand why President Theodore Roosevelt, upon visiting the canyon south rim in 1903, mused. In the Grand Canyon, Arizona has a natural wonder, which is in kind absolutely unparalleled throughout the rest of the world. But the canyon's unparalleled beauty and solitude is at risk, surrounded by the threats of development from all sides. On the South Rim, an Italian-based real estate company has proposed expanding the development of the small village of Toussaint, a project that would require excessive amounts of water that would inevitably diminish the canyon's natural springs, seeps, and waterfalls, a unique and critical source of biodiversity within the canyon. In the east, there are active uranium mining claims, and on the western edge of Arizona, the sound of helicopters reverberates in one of the last sections of the canyon, known as Helicopter Alley. Faye Augustine Hartman, Associate Director of the Colorado River Basin Programme, at American Rivers, sums up the increasing trend of development within the Grand Canyon in the words of renowned author Kevin Fedarko.
1: Kevin Fedarko said it best in an article that he wrote for National Geographic last year. Since it entered the American consciousness, the Grand Canyon has provoked two major reactions, the urge to protect it and the temptation to make a whopping pile of money from it. I completely agree with his statement. The history of the canyon is chock full of people who cherish and connect with this space, the beauty, the majesty of the canyon, the river, and have the urge to protect it, not only for themselves, for visiting later, but for their kids, for their grandkids, for their friends, for people that they don't even know. And then there are others that acknowledge the beauty and the popularity of this space. They acknowledge the connection that millions of Americans and millions of people around the world have with this space. And... They see dollar signs on the canyon's wall. They see an opportunity to prosper from the beauty of a wild, iconic landscape.
0: Join me today and discover more online at AmericanRivers.org as we explore one of America's natural wonders and the troubling trend of increased development pressures facing one of our nation's most iconic national parks. Only an eight-minute drive north from Grand Canyon Village is the abandoned orphan mine that leaks radioactive waste into Horn Creek. Following this creek, descending into the canyon, you'd find yourself at a massive rapid, created by the confluence. Observing this rapid for a few hours, you'd surely witness an array of river runners plowing through the rapid, at times their boats submerged. They'd happily cheer upon entering and exiting the rapid, unaware of the orphan mine and the unsettling fate of horn creek
1: there is some pollution issues from abandoned mines like the abandoned mine that horn creek is affected on the contaminated groundwater can seep into really critical springs and seeps which are the heartbeat of the canyon's diverse ecosystem and that inevitably flow back into the Colorado river the usgs has pointed out that there are at least 15 springs and five wells inside the grand canyon that have levels of uranium that are considered unsafe to drink luckily uh, there is a moratorium on uranium mining on about a million acres of public land that surrounds the canyon however despite the fact that this moratorium exists it exists for new mining claims uh, and so the canyon is still at risk There are these things called legacy claims, which have existed for decades, which are old mining claims or old mines that have stopped producing or never started producing, but those are still allowed underneath this moratorium.
0: And, disturbingly, there are currently efforts to reopen mines due to these legacy claims. A 12-minute drive south of Grand Canyon Village is the town of Toussaint, A village composed of only a few hotels, a theater, less than a dozen places to eat, and a Texaco gas station. Mostly, people drive through, perhaps stopping for a snack or a much-needed refill of their tanks. All in all, the town races by, and in the last census, its population was a mere 558 residents. But, things are posed to change.
1: Tucson has been considering a dramatic expansion of the town itself that could include the construction of over 2,000 new homes and an over 3 million square feet of commercial space. And the biggest issue that that's surrounding this development expansion is where they get their water from. The, area that Tucson is a part of on the canyon and the South Rim is incredibly arid. And the development of the size, 3 million square feet of commercial space, 2,000 new homes, would require a pretty significant amount of water that just doesn't exist in that area. And so the developers of this program have considered a number of different ways where and how this water could be supplied from. So The biggest concern would be to punch wells through the surface of the south rim to access these aquifers that drive and um, allow the springs and seeps of the Grand Canyon to thrive deep within the canyon itself. The seeps and springs and the waterfalls of the inner Grand Canyon are so critical to the ecology um, of the canyon itself and really sustains the cool, clean water for so many species uh, that depend on these seeps and springs within the
0: canyon itself. They went on to explain that, in 2016, the U.S. Forest Service rejected a review of the town's application of a critical road for the development process. But this likely isn't the end because although this poses a serious hurdle, there is potential for the development to overcome. Nonetheless, the rejection of the road is a positive move towards protecting the critical seeps, springs, and waterfalls of the Grand Canyon. As the walls begin to peel back in the last section of the canyon— The Colorado River approaches Lake Mead, a reservoir created by the Hoover Dam, and for someone rafting down the meandering river, the last 30 miles reverberates with the sound of helicopters weaving through the canyon's walls as hundreds of tourists a day snap pictures from above, a slap of reintegration. Civilization is near. The chopping sound abruptly and starkly contrasts the silence one has allowed themselves to become accustomed to deep within the canyon the trip in its truest sense is already over.
1: Helicopters soar above and down into the canyon pretty much from very early in the morning dawn all the way until dusk. And helicopters are a really popular way especially for tourists that are in Las Vegas to see and experience the canyon from, you know, both above the rim and beneath the rim. Unfortunately, this issue of wanting to provide users with an incredible experience um, has really uh, increased the amount of helicopter traffic in the canyon, which has turned a pretty fantastic, sublime canyon experience into a nonstop noise-filled chaos zone, commonly known as the helicopter alley. So the, the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, officially caps the air tours within the Grand Canyon uh, at just about 94,000 flights a year. Um, In the spring of 2015, National Geographic counted 262 flights in five hours within Helicopter Alley. And it's been known and it's been counted that on really busy days, one can see 450 flights or more happening within this 30-mile stretch The challenge is that the noise above the canyon from the helicopters could and has the potential to increase even more in the coming years. There's a number of proposals to expand Grand Canyon West, the development that includes um, the skywalk further downriver, and that would therefore increase the traffic, the noise, and potentially danger of a significant accident happening in or above the canyon.
0: All of these threats described by Faye. The toxic mining runoff, Toussaint's problematic hopes for growth, and Helicopter Alley are all deeply unsettling. But the most unsettling threat facing the canyon is none of these. A proposal for development so hurtfully symbolic and culturally insensitive that it's hard to believe it even exists as an idea. The Grand Canyon Escalade. Three quarters of a mile deep within the canyon, this is the sound of oars dipping into the frigid water of the Colorado River. 61 miles from where our group made our first strokes into the current of the Grand Canyon, I row. We have almost 200 miles to go. I pull through a slight bend in the river. We are approaching the confluence of the Little Colorado, a tributary of the Colorado River that drains 26,000 square miles. As I come around the bend, I see three boats tied up on the left bank of the river. People covered in sunscreen smile and gingerly wave as we approach. As our raft kisses the sand, I think to myself, how did I end up here? The simple answer is this. I was invited on a river trip by my best friend's family, Our group of a dozen rambunctious river runners, some of us young, some of us more experienced, who have spent their lives on the river, full of engrossing stories, some thrilling, some tranquil, all captivating. A certain glaze eclipses the eyes of a river runner as they dive into a story about water, signaling to their listeners that they are traveling back to a moment punctuated by freedom and adventure. Their stories often come out of nowhere, perhaps sparked by a sense of deja vu that comes with the curve of a rock formation, the echoing sound of a rapid, or the satisfaction of pulling an oar through water. The suspense, and also peace, these stories convey, are small highlights of my days on the Colorado River. At that moment, as I pulled onto the banks, all that was to come was unknown. The weight of this moment was all that seemed to exist. I had no idea how I was about to get an insider's perspective of why the Escalade proposal is so wrong, before I even knew what the proposal was. I grabbed my journal and a pen from my dry bag, hopped out of my boat, Walked to where the aquamarine water of the little Colorado enters the Colorado, an alien sight possessing the stark contrasting beauty, usually found in dreams, sat down on the converging banks of the confluence, and I wrote, This is the most beautiful thing, possessing the most unbelievable, contradictory beauty. Water of aquamarine paradise flows through the desert with a story and course I do not know, traveling deep into the bedrock of the earth to meet the dark green Colorado where I sit, under the strange and satisfying spell created by the paramount appeal and sublimity of two rivers converging. If the world could be seen in filters and shades most complimentary and provoking, I'm convinced the secret is kept where the little Colorado meets the Colorado. I feel enlightened by, yet completely at odds with, reality, as if stories are bubbling up all around me, but just out of grasp. I feel unfinished, yet I feel whole, and undeniably a piece of me wants to disappear into the side canyon, I at last know the pole of the incalculable unknown. God, it's haunting. If there's one thing I'm sure of, it's that a hauntingly emotional moment exists where a river becomes one with another. In my brief time sitting on the converging banks of the two rivers, I had absolutely no idea that this profound place is being threatened by an extremely unsettling proposal, the Grand Canyon Escalade. From this spot several years from now, I could very well look up at the rim above me and know that just over its edge is a massive hotel, RV park, campground, boutiques, and shops that sell cheap souvenirs. Then, descending towards me, I'd see a 1.4 mile long gondola, synthetically reaching into the heart of the Grand Canyon. Its purpose? Transporting up to 10,000 people a day down the cascading cliff faces and into the depths almost a mile deep. And slightly downstream of me, I'd see thousands of people enjoying a convenient walkway along the river's edge, as well as an amphitheater, all severely misplaced. Two months ago at the Little Colorado, had I looked up at the rim from where I sat, I'd be looking at the western edge of the Navajo Nation, key players in the Escalade proposal, because the development would hugely affect them, both politically and culturally.
2: So they want to build at the top of the canyon and it goes down and it stops near the confluence. Originally, their drawings had it going right to the confluence, but now they're saying, oh, it's going to be 300 feet back, but it's still going to be visible and you'll still hear it from where the water comes together.
0: This is Jason Nez, a Native American archaeologist who works with Native families opposed to the Escalade proposal. He has also worked for a variety of cultural resource management companies in northern Arizona, as well as for the Park and Forest Service. Fueled by a sense of place and community, he is committed to preserving cultural sites. I grew up on
2: the Navajo Reservation, and I was raised by my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles. I was raised all over the reservation, I guess. And and that's how I've learned so much about it, and that's why I have such a strong attachment to it, because of these people that told me things about the land that told me things about the water and the mountains.
0: For some Native Americans, it is hard to understate the spiritual significance of the confluence, as Jason explains.
2: The western is mostly out in the western half of the reservation, it's our belief that we emerge from the confluence there, at the Little Colorado and the Big Colorado River. And when you say, My grandmother would say that. the What she's saying is people came out there and it's sacred. And it doesn't necessarily mean Navajo people came out there. It means someone emerged somewhere. It's sacred to someone, so be respectful of it. And with that in mind, as long as what you believe keeps you strong, it makes you a good person, and it keeps you balanced, then it's okay to have a slightly different belief. And that's why this place is important to us. And that's why it's important to me and my family, because we believe that that's where we emerge from. It's sacred to someone. Be respectful of it.
0: Because the Confluence is a sacred site, it is paramount that the developers respect the opinions and wishes of those who believe this. Unfortunately, this has not been the case. When you look on their Facebook page, like one of, um, one of their
2: former posts says, there's nothing sacred here the Navajo, the Hopi, and the Park Service don't consider this place sacred. And that's despite Navajos, Hopis, and the Park Service all saying, hey, this is a sacred spot. There's travel documents, there's a a report by the Navajo Nation Archaeology Department that talks about why the confluence is sacred. And the Hopis have been firmly opposed to us also saying it's sacred for their reasons. But all of us We firmly believe it's sacred, and they've just been repeating this lie that it's not sacred. And first they were saying they're going to build it right away. We have all the permission. We got the Hopi's permission. We got the medicine man's permission. We got environmental clearances and all that. And all of that was a lie. They hadn't had any of that. And to this day, they still don't have permission from... Navajo EPA, they don't have permission from the Navajo Medicine Men's Association. Everyone's opposed to this project.
0: Jason went on to explain that between 2012 and 2015, when the development project was initially being campaigned, the exact legislation of the plans were kept secret.
2: They wrote up this legislation without input, without consulting people, without any studies or anything, and it was done in secret. No one saw it, no one knew what was being agreed to until the Navajo Times wrote an article about it. And then they had to bring it out into the open, but all of this was done with no transparency.
0: Despite this, a resolution passed in favor of the project in October 2012. But again, there was little transparency.
2: They disregarded the rules, which state you have to post what the meeting is going to be about like 24 or 48 hours in advance. And all of a sudden they like, okay, we're going to have this and vote on it. And they were able to, to pass a resolution supporting the project. Anyone that was trying to record the meeting was kicked out and they, they kicked out a lot of the local people that were opposed to it. And then they had a second count because the first one sort of went crazy. And on the second count, uh, one of the chapter people, they, they didn't count enough votes to support the project. So she went outside and counted people outside, which they're not supposed to do.
0: It is important to remember that no one has actually put a shovel in the ground. But if the Navajo sign a contract with the Confluence partners, the developers promoting the project, the Navajo Nation will likely be slapped with a huge lawsuit due to the Navajo-Hopi Intertribal Agreement
2: in which the Navajo Nation agreed to protect sacred Hopi sites on Navajo land, which the confluence is part of that. It would violate these agreements, and we would be subject to lawsuits. And according to the developers, for Article 16.4 of their legislation, it says, no third-party rights violated by this agreement. Each party represents and warrants to the other parties that the execution and performance of this agreement will not breach any existing obligations to any third parties or otherwise. So basically, if the Navajo Nation signs this, they're already violating a third party right. Because right away, there's a third party. There's the Hopi tribe. There's the Park Service. And when all these lawsuits go flying through the air... The developers, they just go home to Scottsdale. And then the Navajo people are the ones that are going to be paying for this.
0: What's equally off putting is that the developers want the Navajo Nation to contribute $65 million to the project up front. They also
2: want the Navajo Nation to build the the road to get out there. And paving roads is expensive. (laughs) They're going to have like 26 miles of roads. And they say the Navajo Nation only needs to pay $65 million. And industries they come to our reservation because they know that our, our tribal government in the past we've just like we voted against the laws that protect us just to just to accommodate industry that will will give up the whole pot for a couple of pennies. It's just part of this long history of us living here in the desert, living in substandard conditions, is are We're always looking for a way out. We're looking for a way to improve ourselves, and we're getting there. Meanwhile, all these industries are coming in from the side, and sometimes you see a mirage out there. Sometimes you see the end of the rainbow. There's a pot of gold out there, is what they used to tell us in school. And if you really believe that, you go running out chasing the end of the rainbow, but you'll never catch that pot of gold.
0: Jason believes that development is needed on the Navajo Nation. But with that being said, appropriate development requires respect for Native traditions and proportional benefits. Jason gave an example of what positive development looks like.
2: The, the Park Service recently changed the way they manage Desert View. They brought in Native artists and, and Native uh, craftspeople. They'll set up at Desert View Tower and they'll show people how they make jewelry, how they weave rugs, and then they'll sell what they make to, to tourists. And that's an appropriate way to do it. It's in a footprint of infrastructure that's already there. It puts money in local Native people's pockets, and it helps let tourists know who we are and what we're about in our own way. It's Native people saying, this is how we want to share what we know. This is how we want to share who we are and what we're about. And this is the way we want to do it. It's not someone telling us this is how you're going to do it.
3: I think that success in the long run will look like that empowerment of the local peoples so that they can find sufficient and sustainable income on their own terms so they don't have to rely on some of these larger invasive development projects that come in where they are not benefiting as much as the corporation
0: is. This is Amy Martin, a woman who is connected to the canyon like no other. Amy is a photographer, raft guide, and biological science technician. One day, she may be found photographing the canyon. The next day, she may be running a rapid with a group of scientists, youth, or tourists. And on any other given day, she is happily found working for the fishery, vegetation, and hydrology programs at Grand Canyon. Amy certainly brings a well-rounded perspective of the canyon. And one of the effects that worries her the most is the impact the Grand Canyon escalade would have on an endangered fish species that makes its home at the mouth of the Little Colorado, the humpback chub. There is no water where the development on the rim would occur, a popular theme of development in the desert. Down below in the Redwall Limestone is an aquifer that would need to be tapped to make the development possible. But this water likely feeds the springs down on the Little Colorado that keep the humpback chub alive.
3: This area in particular is a very fragile ecological area. It houses the largest remaining population of humpback chub in the world, and the humpback chub are an endangered species. And that population is also believed to be the most genetically pure population of humpback chub. It also provides spawning areas for the chub and also other native fish species.
2: So they would be potentially destroying endangered fish habitat. There's going to be a lot of effect on these species when you put 10,000 people a day down on the bottom and on top, too.
0: But why does protecting endangered species matter? A
2: lot
3: of people have to look at this as something that is self-serving. Why should we preserve species? Well, for one, they provide our own support system as humans because really everything is interrelated. Everything's interconnected. And everything is supporting us, even though, going back to that disconnect, we disconnect ourselves more and more and more. Um, The reality of the situation is the natural world is um, providing everything that sustains us.
0: Amy went on to give a dramatic and helpful analogy of what our negligence truly entails.
3: We are all in a plane together. And... Friends and family are on this plane, and what the closest family and friends represent is the population of humans on this earth. And this plane is put together by rivets, and so each rivet represents a different species. So as you're flying up thousands and thousands of feet above the air, these rivets keep falling off. And that's where we are losing species. Using this analogy and these rivets popping off that represent species, how many rivets, if it's you and your family and your friends up there, how many are you willing to lose before we do something about it?
0: Humanity is inextricably bound and subject to the health of natural ecosystems and their inhabitants. And hence, we must be sustainable stewards of land. Visualize this plane, and I think you'll begin to understand why the humpback chub matters. An allegiance to the chub is a statement of our allegiance to the world of interconnected living organisms, humans included. And the humpback chub certainly wouldn't be the only species potentially affected by the Escalade development. The Escalade developers claim that the development will only take up 420 acres, but when you look into their proposed legislation, they include a separate restricted area, a 15-mile diameter around where the Escalade would be located. They also have what is called an Economic Study Corridor, encompassing 2.5 miles north and south of the road that would go between Highway 89, near Tuba City, to the development site on the rim. This information can be found in the Escalade legislation, which is on the Navajo Nation Council's website. In total, the acres do not come out to 420. They come out to 226,000 affecting the habitat of many species and native people in the area. To list a few, bighorn sheep, birds of prey, including one of the world's rarest bird species, the critically endangered condors, and domestic cattle and sheep. Furthermore, if 10,000 people a day are to ride down to the river, people will need to use the bathroom, a lot. The Escalade legislation doesn't address where all this human waste will go. Either it would need to be transported back to the rim via the bottom of the tram cars, making for a stenchy ride, or a sewage treatment plant would need to be built in one of the most ecologically fragile and sacred places in the world. But, as always, there are two sides to a story. Lamar Whitmer of Scottsdale, Arizona, the principal of the development company Confluence Partners, and the primary proponent of the Escalade proposal, brings up an interesting point. He claims that not everyone is agile enough to raft through the canyon, ride a mule, or hike down into the canyon. Is it fair that only the active get to experience the canyon's beauty from within it? In a Los Angeles Times article, Whitmer is cited remarking, "...the park service offers nothing more than a drive-by wilderness experience." The average person can't ride a mule to the bottom of the canyon. We want them to feel the canyon from the bottom. This viewpoint certainly brings up some questions. Who gets to go into the canyon, and who doesn't, and who decides? Could this project allow more people to experience the canyon? Would these means justify the ends? This stance and these questions are certainly worth mentioning, because they compose Whitmer's most convincing arguments. More people should have the opportunity to marvel in the Grand Canyon's beauty. And this is not a bad outlook, but it is most certainly putting humanity's values over the canyons. Perhaps more fitting questions to ask ourselves when considering sites of extreme cultural and ecological prestige are, is this really how we want to treat our most iconic national park, the crown jewel of the entire national park system? How would this affect local peoples? And would this project evaluate the very rugged and wild qualities that draw so many people to it? Here are Amy and Jason responding to Whitmer's argument.
3: I mean, from my experience, I think the average person can ride a mule to the bottom. There's also other ways to go to the bottom. You can drive down to Diamond Creek on the Wallapai Reservation and stand next to the river and you're down in the gorge. Yeah, there just are there are other there are other ways.
2: There's the Tanner Trail, there's Grandview Trail, there's Bright Angel, there's the Kaibab. There's all sorts of trails with varying levels of of work that you can take to get down there. You can do it a day, you can get a permit, you can do it overnight. It gets a bit crowded lately, but it's something that's achievable and possible for the average person.
0: But could allowing more people to experience the canyon from below the rim, people who may not want to hike down, possibly from a major metropolitan area, who are afraid to step out of their comfort zone, potentially impassion them to protect the canyon in other ways. Would the means justify the ends? Jason didn't think so, and Amy remarked on how you don't need to go below the rim, or even to the canyon at all, to form a connection to the place.
2: The means will never justify the end. Because when you look at the means, the beginning of this project, it started out with an illegal chapter meeting in... That in itself should sink this project because they don't have any support from the people that actually matter, who are the people that live out there. The means is to divide the community. The means is going to be instigating this financial conflict with our neighboring tribes, the Hopi, who have every right to sue us if we go through with this. The tribes coming together, cooperating on... Their support for Bears Ears National Monument was was sort of unprecedented. It's been a long time since Navajos and Hopis and Zunis and Pueblos have all been able to like agree on something and work together to preserve and protect landscape. And this project could potentially threaten that cooperation that a lot of people have worked long and hard to get. We can all work together on solutions and part of that solution is like this is a bad idea let's just not do it let's work on other things what i do believe is that there are other ways to impassion people that doesn't
3: meet necessarily mean bringing ten thousand people a day into the bottom of the canyon and i think some of those other ways to impassion people to act and protect the canyon maybe without standing in the bottom is using art and is using education is using communication whether you've seen it standing at the bottom, standing on the rim, and are reminded of it through photographs, or you know you're in your living room and you see a film, like a compelling film on the Grand Canyon, or through writing. It's a way to experience that essence of place it's also hard for me um to say oh no you know like I don't you know I don't want thousands of people to stand in the bottom and you know I don't think that's true it's an incredible experience and I wish you know everyone could experience it but again we go back to you know with these large developments are we changing that which we you know came in the first place to experience
0: this brings up another interesting point In 2016, nearly 6 million visitors from around the world flocked to the canyon's edge to experience the grandeur that challenges human comprehension. It's taken hundreds of millions of years for nature to deeply carve the canyon, reminding us that humanity itself has existed for only a mere fraction of a moment on the canyon's geologic clock. It is true, most people who visit the canyon go no further than its edge, as such requires the effort of hiking or shelling out a little coin for a mule ride but everyone has the ability and opportunity to look out from the canyon's iconic south rim and peer into the expansive abyss that stretches into the horizon, an endless chasm of eroded rock, and hear the soft whisper of the breeze in the pines. The idea of this treasured view being tainted with further human development is unthinkable to me. My first experience with a canyon, gazing into its depths two years ago now, is that it was powerful beyond words. Right next to me, A complete stranger fell to their knees and began weeping in humbled awe. I slowly walked away, a token of respect. And as I did, I shed a single tear before returning to my friend's laughter. I never told a soul. Some things are too powerful to repeat until needed.
2: So when you're on the top, you have majestic viewscape that's just beautiful it's it's unchanged there's no power lines there's no houses you can see the north rim of the grand canyon the kaibab plateau you can see house rock valley you can see vermilion cliffs you can see echo cliffs it's just mind-boggling amazing and building this infrastructure there is going to remove what makes it sacred and what makes it important it's that having that solitude, having nothing there, that's what makes it
0: special. It's, it would lose the values that make it important. At the beginning of this episode, we quoted Theodore Roosevelt's fascination with the canyon. His poetic words about the canyon's beauty speak to so many of us. However, he had more to give besides just the words on its beauty. He wrote, I want to ask you to keep this great wonder of nature as it is now, I hope you will not have a building of any kind, not a summer cottage, a hotel, or anything else, to mar the wonderful grandeur, the sublimity, the great loneliness and beauty of the canyon. Leave it as it is. You cannot improve on it. The ages have been at work on it, and man can only mar it. It's impossible to visualize how a tram, restaurants, hotels, and shops could one day be a part of the view into the canyon from the iconic South Rim, What a sharp contrast it would be, capable of perpetuating the illusion that humans are all powerful. The Grand Canyon is something so incredibly beyond human comprehension that, at times, the circumstances that have led one's existence to peer into its grandness feels utterly ridiculous in the most poetic version of the word. It's a vital feeling. Perhaps this is why so many return to rivers year after year, Not for the comfort, or for the luxury, or for the pictures, but for the rawness of the moment and the uninsured outcome. This is incredibly grounding, and after my river trip down the canyon, I at last understood the pull of the incalculable unknown. Two months ago, back at mile 61, as I came around a bend that exposed the awe-inspiring confluence of the little Colorado, I was thinking to myself, how did I reach this point? The more complex, metaphysical answer is that I didn't feel like I was getting somewhere. Driving to Lee's Ferry, the entry of the canyon by boat, I could peer into the canyon as I crossed Navajo Bridge thousands of feet above the water, and I knew I was not coming but returning, returning to something so far beyond me and the humanity I know. It is the life in the moment and the raw fragility of the human experience that has always and will always draw people into the wild, to remember, at least for a moment, the ancient and ongoing struggle of man versus nature, the lack of comfort, and the humbling disempowerment among the elements. Yes, we are beings with increasing standards of comfort, but we need raw places to return to, unconquered, ungovernable, unconformed pockets of nature. We need Everest's in their truest form, devoid of gondolas, cement walkways, hotels, or amusement parks. And, if nothing else, we need their untarnished views. In his wilderness essay, Wallace Stagner once wrote, Something will have gone out of us as a people if we ever let the remaining wilderness be destroyed. We simply need that wild country available to us, even if we never do more than drive to its edge and look in. And, perhaps, in the case of the Grand Canyon, looking in should be enough. Enough to quench the tantalizing thirst for the unknown, enough to walk away from with a humbled and dumbfounded smirk overtaking one's face, and... Most fittingly, enough to peacefully leave unknown for others to make their pilgrimage to.
2: Because when we protect federal lands, when we protect parks and forests and recreation areas and wildlife refuges, we're protecting and preserving ourselves. What happens to these lands happens to us.
3: We are at this point in history where we are knowledgeable enough and we have the resources that we should proceed respectfully to the tribes that have been there, as well as respectfully towards the ecology
0: of the place. I hope that if you are listening to this piece a year to a millennium from now, you may still walk to the edge of the canyon's south rim and glimpse, even if for only a moment, the unknown, ungovernable, humbling expanse of wilderness where the earth has eroded from within in its truest form. This is enough, and that is all. If you have been impassioned and inspired to help protect the Grand Canyon, take action at AmericanRivers.org slash Grand Canyon. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. Tune in to our next episode to hear more about the rivers that connect us.